The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm very happy to be talking today to longtime National Committee member John Garver, Professor Emeritus in the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where he taught for the past 30 years. Prior to that, he was in the 3rd Infantry of the U.S. Army based in Germany, and then for a little over a decade, John held a variety of posts as a researcher or assistant professor at academic institutions in Taiwan, the PRC, and the United States. He's published 11 books, several monographs, contributed chapters to 28 books, and published hundreds of articles, op-eds, book reviews, etc. Yet through all of this prodigious output, he's been very faithful to his primary interest, China's foreign policy. Over the years, he's written very thoughtfully about specific aspects of China or Taiwan's foreign policy, but his latest book, China's Quest, takes a very broad overview of the entirety of China's foreign policy from the founding of the PRC until last year. It's a very well-written, clear, carefully researched book, and I believe it will likely become the go-to volume for anyone interested in a straightforward, balanced, articulate account. But it's also a huge book, and I must say when I first saw it, John, I found it very daunting, but once I started and once I began looking at it, I was really quite engrossed in it, and I want to congratulate you on on doing a terrific job. Thank you very much, Jan. But I'm why? <laughs> you, you, you should be, because um, I don't give praise out lightly. <laughs> but, um, so I guess my first question is, why this book? Because there was a need for it. I've taught classes on Chinese foreign policy, Chinese foreign relations for almost every other semester of the, the 30 years I was at Tech. It was one of my most frequently taught courses. And it, it became apparent to me that the kids didn't understand a lot of the basic history, a lot of the basic background. And so I would try to write, I would add articles, journal, I'd put journal articles on, on reserve at the library or chapters and books of the library, which meant that the reading lists got longer and longer and longer, which meant that the students, in fact, were less likely to engage them. So there was a need for a, a comprehensive, synthetic narrative history, straightforward narrative history that simply didn't exist. There are a bunch of excellent articles and books on specialized, narrow aspects of Chinese foreign relations. There were a couple of, there were a number, a dozen or so edited volumes but there was no single author comprehensive history. So in the summer of 2014, I, I thought about this for years, and, and I understood the need. There, was, there wasn't a, a history, which is strange, given the importance right. of China. That China's role in the world, it's, it's been recognized since 19, since the PRC since 1950, China since World War II. Um, Today, China is one of the most rapidly growing economies in the world, soon to overtake the United States, but it already hasn't, a rising world power. And yet, there's no comprehensive history. Hmm. 
prison. And I thought of Al-Ulam's uh, expansion of peaceful coexistence. That's what I tried to do, is, you know, comprehensive narrative history. And I thought about this for years. Each, each time I taught the course on Chinese foreign relations at Georgia Tech, I was, again, aware of the shallowness of my students' historical understanding. And I tried to address that in class, but I had other things to talk about, so I had to assume a lot. So I'd use their assigned readings, which had problems of its own. You know, I think I didn't take it earlier, didn't I take this project earlier, because it was simply so immense. Yes. Which I suspect is why no one else has written the Conference of American History. Well, given yeah. its immensity, it, it required, and the fact that it's very carefully researched, I'm just curious about sort of the technical aspects of putting it together. Um, how did you do this? Is this all research of your own? Did you have thousands of graduate students at your beck and call to do it? You know, I have in my files, my old files, a paper I wrote when I was 13 years old. Really? In 1959, about the uprising in Tibet. Wow. And the Dalai Lama's flight to India. I have no recollection of why in the world I wrote that paper. But I've been following... China and the world since ever since I was, you know, 12, 13 years old. And then, of course, oh. during the Vietnam War, when I was in the Army, the question was, why are we doing it in Vietnam? Why are we intervening in Vietnam? What's this all about? Mm-hmm. And I discovered that, lo and behold, we, we intervened in Vietnam to contain China. Right. China was on the march, and Vietnam was about containing China. So, you know, I've my whole life has been devoted to trying to understand China and the world. And I've read you know, these books, there are hundreds of excellent, excellent books and articles, and I've read most of them. And I know what they said might not be fresh in my memory, but I know, for example, that Doug Barnett wrote about the Mm -hmm. 58 crisis, or, you know, that uh, Beverly Hooper wrote about, you know, China's standing up in 1949, 50, 51, and so forth, the elimination of the phone. So this was also in my mind. And so, I, in a way, it was easy to write. That's why I was able to do it in three years. I was, wow. And, you know, if I hadn't read, the, if I, you know, I, there, was, there, was, there were several other additional sources. There were ch- Chinese memoirs. I think it's wonderful that you use so many memoirs. That must have been fascinating and fun to read. <laughs> Much more interesting than boring statistics. Right, right. There are the, the Soviet and Eastern European diplomatic archives mm-hmm. published by the International History of the Cold War Project mm-hmm. at the Smithsonian Institution. So I drew on those and, and mixed them with, basically the, the work is based upon, it's a synthesis of secondary literature, okay. synthesis of current books and articles with uh, some primary stuff blended in, your ch- largely Chinese memoirs blended in and cooked around in Garver's brain for 30 years. Well, that's fascinating. It's interesting. We just had Ezra Vogel talk to a group at the Association of American Studies um, annual meeting two weeks ago, and he's at work now on a new book. He put aside his book on Hu Yabang, and he's now writing a book which he feels, and I think he's right, is a more important book in terms of what's actually happening in the world today. And it's a book on how China and Japan have learned from one another over the Mm -hmm. years. And he talked about the process of writing it and said that now that he is older, it's different writing a book than when you're a younger academic and you go out and you're 
you know, intrepidly going and getting this primary source material yourself. He said, but as I grow older, I find the need to look at the bigger picture and to synthesize things. So it's interesting that you, you mm-hmm. use that, mm-hmm. that same phrase. Well, I'm glad you did, and I, I interrupted you before. I think you were going to tell me what finally it was that drove you to yes. take all of these thinkings that you had bubbling in your brain and put it into a book. It was my sage wife, Penelope B. Prime. In the summer of 2012, I finished the fifth iteration of an overseas program that I had set up and organized, taking a group of George Tech students to Korea, South Korea, Japan, Okinawa, Taiwan, Guangdong Province, Hong Kong, to study East Asian development, economic and political. Powerful, great program. The most I've heard great things about that program. Pedagogic you know, project I ever took as a teacher. I'd done five iterations of that, but earlier I'd done a f- three iterations of a purely China program. And I, so I didn't want to do that again. It was still it was still in my mind, but I thought I came back to this book project. I said, I, should I do it? Gosh, you know, it's an awful lot of work, you know, and that's why I know that there isn't one because it's, such, it's so ominous. Mm-hmm. I was going back and forth, and Penny finally at one point said, look, John, if you, if you don't write this book now, or at least try to write it, you'll always regret having not written it, or at least tried it. If you don't do it now in a few years, you won't have the vigor to do it. So write the damn book. <laughs> and you always listen to what your wife I says. <laughs> I know. I know your wife. I'd listen to her, too. <laughs> For was, those was... listeners who don't know, um, John's wife is Penelope Prime, who's a very thoughtful, interesting, and well-respected economist who works on China as well and on parts of Asia. And so they make, they're one of those power couples in the China field, one of the few power couples, actually, in the China field. Um, just one more question or set of questions on sort of the process of the book, or not so much the process, but your thought about this. So as I was reading it, it, it really struck me, as it strikes me when I'm reading things that, say, Mike Lampton writes or Harry Harding or something, that even though you're a political scientist, the book is a history so how do you reconcile this? Do you feel you're wearing two skins? Is, you know, it, it, it's... And, and just to further that, I was talking to one of our, one of my colleagues here at the committee today who happens to be a historian, a much younger historian or a much younger person, <laughs> either you or I are. And she said that actually, she pointed out that actually... Um, it's a generational kind of thing, that it would be highly unusual for a scholar of her generation, a political science, a political scientist of her generation, to be writing something like this, that just the whole way universities train younger academics, you no longer get these wonderful narrative kinds of writings like you or Mike or Ken or Harry do. And I'm just curious as to what you think about that. You know, how, do you think of yourself as a combination of political scientist and historian? And are you concerned about the fact that the field of political science is losing something because the younger generation no longer does this sort of research or writing or thinking? Yes, yes to all of the above. Mm. I think that the field of political science is moving towards a quantitative approach, research methodology, quantification, on the basis of the notion that this is scientific and it's political science after all, therefore should it adopt a scientific method. 
And what that means is that field field studies, area area studies is disparaged. The mastery of the language, the living in the country, understanding the history and the culture of the country to give that deep knowledge is it's that's becoming passe. I, I think it's very unfortunate. You know, during the Cold War, well, even during the struggle against National Socialism, I think the government funded a lot of studies to to develop a historical linguistic understanding of, the, of our rivals. And I think that's, you know, that's unfortunately been one of the losses of the in the post-Cold War period. That's, it's, there's a lot of things coming in. One are, you know, government funding priorities and the, the fact that discretionary funding in all areas is, is decreasing. Right. Uh, but there's also this notion that political science is, has to be a science, and that means quantitative approach and so forth. Um, I think that's unfortunate, and I've seen that in, 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 in my life. I, I was hired at Georgia Tech in 1985. I could not be hired in in two thousand and five. Right, and what I a was loss hired, that would have been. Yeah, I was hired by people that either were historians or had a historical approach. I mean, there is a field in political science, or you know, people that have called themselves political scientists, people like Henry Kissinger and people like that, right from a historical perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's traditionally been considered one valid approach within political science, but I think that that has been discarded and disparages area studies. So, you know, but in terms of my writing this book, I, my first objective was to write a synthetic, straightforward mosaic narrative, narrative statement of Chinese foreign relations, tracing the patterns of conflict and cooperation with the major powers, five major powers. So that meant chronolo chronologically organized and covering the, the very major influences on Chinese policy as they came up. The other thing I was trying to do was to, to flesh out, to present the idea which I've, conclusion I've come to after a life of studying this, that China, domestic factors are powerful drivers of Chinese foreign relations. I wouldn't say the most powerful always, but they're always there and are frequently the most powerful. So, you know, this notion of the domestic drivers of foreign relations, you can, that fits very nicely under, that's a whole field of political science. Um, and so there are, are a number of case studies of, of that, of domestic variables driving Chinese foreign relations. And in writing the book, there was always a tension between how much should I get on this theoretical hobby horse and, you know, argue that, or should I stick to the straightforward historical narrative? And it was hard trying to keep that balance because you, I often countered situations where it seemed to me they're very powerful domestic drivers. For example, Mao's struggle against uh, Soviet revisionism in the early, very early 1960s. To my mind, it was very closely linked to his struggle against his opponents within, within the Chinese Communist Party who had concluded that Mao <coughs> would... Mao's struggle against Soviet revisionism in, in the early 1960s was closely linked to his struggle against his opponents within the Chinese Communist Party, mm -hmm. who had determined that Mao's economic programs were no longer wise or prudent. And so Mao was journeying up a struggle against Soviet revisionism to, to facilitate a struggle against Chinese revisionism. So Liu Xiaoqi became China's Khrushchev, and... 
and uh, China's Khrushchev was plotting to restore capitalism in the Soviet Union exactly as had been done by Khrushchev after Stalin. So, you know, I, I, there were these patterns, repeated patterns of domestic drivers of Chinese foreign relations. But again, I, my primary objective was a straightforward narrative history, a straightforward narrative history. So I had, writing the book was a constant struggle to balance those two things. Well, you certainly did a very good job of that. And I know that this book, China's Quest, uh, takes this very broad look at, at foreign policy, and you've painted it with a very broad brush. But I know that many of your past books focus on a specific issue, China and India, China, etc., uh, China and the Middle East, China and the Persian Gulf. So let me, just to get a little more substantive questions in, ask you something about each of those three that I just mentioned. So first, the Middle East. It's an enormous headache for everyone in the world. People who live there, the people who try to deal with it, certainly the United States, and I think for China as well. But I'm curious as to whether you think, and I'm asking you now to, in all three of these questions, to a certain extent, think a little more in the future as opposed to the past, which is what your book covers. But do you think that with the withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan, with the sort of cooling down of the region, at least the state-sponsored activity as opposed to ISIS and all that the non-state-sponsored stuff means. Um, but does the Middle East, and in particular the Afghan region, provide an opportunity for the United States and China to work together in some area or another? I personally believe that it, it does. I think the United States and China have a lot of convergent interest in, in West Asia, in the Persian Gulf, in Afghanistan. China is very concerned about instability, Islamic terrorism spreading from Afghanistan into Xinjiang province, the possible Islamicization of, of Pakistan. I think we have strong convergent interests that... I've just completed a study of, the, of China's role in the Iran nuclear negotiations. Mm -hmm. Which is a, That's going to be my third question. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> but go ahead. You can do that now if you want. Okay. China's role in the Iran nuclear negotiations. It's, it's a chapter. It's a part of a project organized by James Irwin Anderson at Georgetown University. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of... I went through the Chinese... The, the website of the Chinese Foreign Ministry. It was a Chinese language website, which is very rich. I was able to find some articles in Chinese academic journals, like the foreign international affairs journals, dealing with China's role in the Iran nuclear issue. I was able to interview several Chinese people, including uh, former Ambassador Hua Liming, and came out of this with a, deep, a much deeper understanding of China's role in that basically this, the short story is that China worked actively in parallel with U.S. diplomacy to bring Iran to the table, to persuade the Iranian leadership to do what was necessary to satisfy the international community. By 2012, as a result of several Israeli interventions, there was a series of Israeli representatives that went to China and said, look, we hope that there's a peaceful settlement. We hope that Iran agrees to give up its nuclear weapons program. We don't think they will, but if they, they do, that's great. But if they don't, 
we reserve the right to do what is necessary to defend our state, to defend our people. Hmm. And the Chinese understood this as, a, as you know, this was a signal of war. And there was a debate within the, the Chinese leaders. And the, 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 there were some people that said, I know this well, there were, there were some people that said, good, get the Americans in another war in the Middle East, bog them down, keep them, keep them from pivoting to, to Asia, you know, the, the more they were bogged down, the more casualties they have, the more wars they have in the Middle East, the better is it for, the better it is for us. But there was a more moderate voice, which, thank God, prevailed, and they said, a war in the Middle East will be a disaster for, for China. It will be a big war. Iran will counterattack American bases in the region. Uh, they may the missile attacks. It will be a big war. We get 50% of our oil from the Persian Gulf. That will stop. The um, the global the global economy will be hard hit by the rise spike in, in oil prices. It could throw the global economy into into a recession. Mm-hmm. The economy, the Chinese economy is struggling to, to to transit this crisis, this economic crisis. In terms of the aspirations of China to build highways, transportation lines, railways through that region to, to Turkey or, or the Silk, the, the new Silk new Road, si- yeah, the One Belt One, one, road. Belt, one road. You can forget about those. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that so that uh, that was I was able to get some that on that debate, but that the, the result was the moderates won, and the, the people said you know, the peace faction won. And they went to Iran and explained the logic. They went to the Iranian leaders. There was an, if you, frequent high-level interactions between Iran and China in 2011, 12, 13, um, in the several years. And it was in 2013, the Chinese adopted what they called the, a proactive, assertive approach to the Middle East. So the one, one manifestation of this was a peace diplomacy towards Iran. China also signed up to provide, made it clear to the Iranian leadership that, that China was prepared to provide very substantial assistance to, China, to Iran's industrialization effort, Iran's economic development effort, if the nuclear issue could be solved, if Iran could satisfy the, the uh, concerns of the international community. But China also, this was based upon a, a, a forum by the the Iranian-Chinese Friendship Association <laughs> in <Wow>. Tehran. <laughs> this must have been in, gosh, early 2015. Hmm. And it was chair, the, the, the person speaking was the Chinese ambassador to Iran. And in this, the, there was a critical section where he lays out China's desire to participate in Iranian de- economic development, assistance, roads, highways, all this type of stuff. But then he says, you know, comrade, our friend, my friends, the, the reality is that this, uh, the, I'm para- this is a crude paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but he said, the reality is simply that, that this assistance cannot be forthcoming if there's war in this area, if, unless there's stability in this area. So he carried in a stick. Mm-hmm. The stick was Chinese, Chinese offers of large-scale assistance and development if they, if they satisfied the demands of the international community. The stick was, I think, probably, and this is more inference, that in closed-door sessions with, with the Chinese, they both said, and we know what these American hegemonists are like, they're a bunch of SOBs. And if, they, if, if, if you get in a war with them, they're going to smash up your country. Look, look at Iraq. Yeah. And so even if, you, even if you survive this war, you're going to be a lot weaker. 
you're better to tie yang guang hui, yang dang to, keep a low profile, keep building your strength. Avoid confrontation with the Americans. These American hegemonists are still running amok. Don't confront them. If you do, you'll be weakened. So that's the stick. So Chinese, I, th I think the Chinese diplomacy, this, a lot of this is low profile. The Chinese diplomacy was active and paralleled United States policy, and I think se probably second only to the United States in persuading Iran to come to terms with the concerns of the international community. I think there are lots of things like that in the Middle East. Afghanistan, uh, you know, there's, India has a lot of concerns about Afghanistan. Pakistan has a lot of concerns about Afghanistan. Iran does. It will be very easy for Iran to become a, a arena for a proxy war between India and Afghanistan, Iran and, Af and Pakistan. I think that the United States and China have common interest in stabilizing Afghanistan, present, preventing a takeover by the more extreme elements of the Taliban, in reviving a process of economic development, tying Afghanistan into the global economy by highways and, and railways, pipelines, to bring that whole region of the world, Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, into the global economy. I think that we could we, we could cooperate in that. There was a great article in Huancho Shibao mm -hmm. in October 2013 by Wang Yes, the dean, the dean of the uh, Beijing University School of International Studies. International Public Affairs. Right. And the title of it was Move to the West, Xi Jinping. And the, uh, Wang Jisun's ar argument was that, look, if we try to, to strengthen our position in the, Western, in the Western Pacific, as we're doing, we're going to bump up against the United States and its allies. There's Japan allied with the United States. There's the Philippines. The Philippines allied. There's Taiwan with American backing. Right. So if we you know, try to move forward in the, in the Pacific, we're going to cause friction with the Americans, whereas to the West. We have more common interest with the Americans. We have, we've cooperated with them before in, in this region. Uh, so let's look to the West. This was presented, it came out the same, same month that, uh, that uh, Xi Jinping announced the, the one, road, one Belt, One Road, just shortly, several weeks after. Now, that was the, she, uh, Wang Jisoo in that article laid out the geostrategic logic for attempted cooperation with the United States, expanded cooperation with the United States in West Asia, the Persian Gulf, West Asia. Unfortunately, I think what happened is that Xi Jinping accepted Wang Jisoo's argument, but not as either or package. that we're going to do the South, South China Sea and <laughs> West Asia. Well, unfortunately, that opens up all sorts of questions that I have. Uh, but unfortunately, we've come actually past the end of our time. Uh, so, A, I want to thank you very much. B, I want to encourage the listeners, because there's several big questions we didn't get to, China, Japan, China, Southeast, uh, South China Sea, especially given what you just said. <laughs> the folks in the Chinese were telling the Iranians about how they shouldn't be bumping up against the American hegemonists, and they should lay low, hide their glory, and, and wait, which is what Deng had told people about the South China Sea and other areas in the Pacific. So the question is, why aren't they listening to their own advice? But to get an answer for that, people should watch. After you listen to this um, audio podcast, you can listen to the podcast that we will be making of 
a um, program that John is going to do in a few minutes, which is going to be a video and audio program, and at which I assume we will also be touching on some of these other questions. So thank you very much, and thank you to all of you listeners out there. Thank you, Jen. Thank you very much. You're welcome.